Okay, here we go. It's finally summer. That means swimming pools, beach vacations, outdoor basketball, soccer, tennis. Everything we spent the last winter gearing up for. But of course, there's a flip side to this. Warmer temperatures, excess insensible losses of fluids, increased metabolic demands. And all this can create a problem for us. Us as humans. The human body does an amazing job at thermoregulation. When it's too cold, we divert the much-needed heat and the warm blood to our vital organs, we shiver, we adjust the metabolism of brown adipose tissue, and so on. When it's too hot, we dilate our capillary beds to give off heat, and we sweat so that evaporation can cool us. But the body's only capable of so much. What happens when these systems fail? Welcome back to another episode of Brainwaves, a podcast about neurology and medicine and all the fascinating science and history that come with it. I'm your host, Jim Siegler, and this week, just as you're getting ready to have fun this summer, if it happens to be warm where you live, exertional heat stroke and its neurologic consequences. How to prevent it, how to recognize it, how to manage it. Don't go anywhere. Heat stroke leads to emergency room visits for nearly 5,000 Americans every year, and it has a reported mortality rate on par with that of actual strokes. Some have reported it to be 10 to 50 percent. It's three times more common in men than women, and twice as common among Southerners. Patients at extremes of age are some at the most risk because they are less able to dissipate the heat, and sadly, they're the most likely to be left alone, which can lead to rapid overheating. Interestingly, the humidity plays a major role as a mediator of heat-related illness. With more humidity, sweat is less likely to evaporate from your skin and naturally cool off the body, which is really why we can feel the heat in more humid parts of the world. More commonly than heat stroke, people experience heat exhaustion, heat cramps, or heat syncope. These are all categorized under the umbrella of heat-related illness. Heat cramps generally describe the muscle cramping that's associated with electrolyte depletion following exertion. Heat syncope, usually next in the sequence of events, can occur when there's a profound peripheral vasodilation, causing loss of consciousness. And heat exhaustion, somewhere on that spectrum. Unlike heat stroke, which is defined by mental status changes with the body's core temperature exceeding 40 degrees Celsius, heat exhaustion occurs at milder internal body temperatures, about 37 to 40 degrees, with milder symptoms, dizziness, thirst, generalized weakness, malaise, headaches. But heat exhaustion is less of an emergency, so patients don't often come to clinical attention for these symptoms. Therefore, experts are less confident in an actual annual incidence. And it's important to recognize and treat heat-related illness as a medical emergency because the symptoms can rapidly progress and the cytotoxic effects of heat, as they damage the structure and the function of proteins, nucleic acids, and fats, this damage is a consequence of both the degree of heat and the duration of hyperthermia. Experts classify heat stroke in one of two ways. There's classic heat stroke, which refers to the intolerance of heat exposure, resulting in hyperthermia and the downstream consequences. Then there's exertional heat stroke, in which the patient has expended large amounts of energy through exercise or physical distress, causing the body's temperature to exceed normal thermoregulatory control. Both types of heat stroke are still characterized by an internal body temperature greater than 40 degrees Celsius with signs of central nervous system dysfunction. Usually, other organs are involved too. Neurologically, this often means delirium or seizures, but there can be other deficits. 
A patient may also experience hypotension 20-30% to 30% of the time in classic heat stroke, rhabdomyolysis, and subsequent renal failure, which we see almost exclusively in exertional heat stroke, disseminated intravascular coagulopathy, again more common in the exertional form, and hypoglycemia with lactic acidosis in exertional heat stroke, or hyperglycemia with classic heat stroke as a stress response. As you might expect, we see exertional heat stroke more commonly in athletes and younger patients. After a long day of two-day football practices, during military training, or among firefighters or construction workers who put themselves through strenuous activity. And while heat stroke is more common among these individuals, suboptimal fitness is a major risk factor for developing the condition. Classic heat stroke, on the other hand, is seen more often in frail and elderly patients who are typically confined to a bed with limited air circulation or cooling, and it's more common to occur during heat waves. And worldwide heat waves aren't getting any better. In the summer of 1995, one heat wave in Chicago led to 700 fatalities and more than 3,000 hospitalizations, while more recent heat waves in Western Europe and Russia led to the deaths of more than 120,000 people. So how does this happen? Well, let's go back to the days of medical school, or maybe even college or high school biology. Throughout the course of human evolution, the body has learned to adapt to external and internal temperatures with an impressive resilience. Peripherally distributed thermoreceptors of the skin and the viscera send temperature information to the primary somatosensory cortex and the preoptic area of the hypothalamus. The hypothalamic thermoregulatory network is extraordinarily complex. I'm not even sure that I understand all the details completely. Safe to say, there are central warm-sensitive and cold-sensitive neurons, and the hypothalamus is a first branch of the efferent pathway that modulates peripheral vasodilation, sweating, and cardiac output in response to excess heat. After so much heat, the cellular stress response system may fail, leading to direct cytotoxicity and multi-organ failure as the circulatory system collapses. And this next part is kind of interesting. So, as the body attempts to dispel the heat by dilating the cutaneous vessels, your cardiac output may increase to up to 12 liters per minute, and this can be a major stressor on your systolic function. To make matters worse, your body is attempting to dispel heat from sweating, so you're already losing volume. An endurance athlete, for example, can sweat out 1 to 2 liters of body water per hour with exertion. Apparently, the human body can double this under extreme circumstances. So now you're losing blood volume, you're ramping up your cardiac output, and maybe you're starting to wonder, where's that shunted blood being diverted away from? It's being redirected from the major intra-abdominal organs, and this can lead to gut ischemia, and eventually reperfusion injury once the splanchnic vessels fail to maintain their constricted state. At that point, you're left with hemorrhagic necrosis of the abdominal compartment. Extreme heat can also lead to disseminated intravascular coagulation, causing widespread microthromboses, also leading to multi-organ failure. All the while this is going on, what is the patient experiencing? I'm sure every one of us has felt some degree of heat exhaustion at some point. You've felt the fatigue, the dizziness, maybe some nausea. Sometimes this comes on slowly, but it can also progress rapidly and lead to confusion or even loss of consciousness. On clinical exam, when you meet these patients, 
it's of vital importance that you check the internal body temperature. Axillary or oral temperature may not confirm your suspicion for heat stroke because those cutaneous vessels are dilated and they're giving off heat. But the core temperature, checking a rectal temperature for example, will be 40 to 44 degrees Celsius, and someone cooler than 40 degrees Celsius should not be definitively ruled out for heat stroke. Other features you may notice in heat stroke, if it's the exertional type, you should see profuse sweating. But for classic heat stroke, the skin is often completely dry. The patient may be entirely alert, or they could be confused or stuporous. They may present with seizures, as I mentioned earlier, or flaccid tone. Reflexes could be absent, or they could be brisk. Importantly, with any focal findings, lateralizing weakness, gaze preference, aphasia, you should consider a structural neurologic cause of the patient's symptoms. Because unlike a few other systemic disturbances like hypoglycemia, you should not see focal deficits with heat stroke. In a patient who comes to attention for hyperthermia and ultramental status or seizures, encephalitis or meningitis are going to be on your differential diagnosis, but your clinical history and the CSF will be helpful here. CSF testing is almost always normal. Maybe you'll see a few white blood cells. And brain imaging with head CT or MRI should also be normal with some rare reports that document T2 abnormalities in the deep gray structures and cerebellum. Interestingly, when it comes to seizures, we see this more often during the cooling phase of treatment. And it's worth noting that you should differentiate seizures from the tetany that can be triggered by hyperventilation that comes as a response to exertional heat stroke. Non-neurologic manifestations of heat stroke should also be recognized. Tachycardia, which is the heart's primary mechanism for increasing blood flow to the dilated cutaneous vasculature. Tachypnea, as the body's response to an evolving lactic acidosis. Vomiting and diarrhea, as the GI system fails to manage its contents with diversion of blood flow to the periphery. When you check the blood work, initial serum chemistries may be unimpressive. The phosphate, however, is often critically low in classic heat stroke, and it's attributed to renal losses. Glucose and the white blood cell count may be elevated as part of a stress response. CK is typically elevated, although there may not be any rhabdo. Contrast this to exertional heat stroke, where there's other evidence of overt rhabdomyolysis, hyperkalemia, kidney injury, and hypoglycemia. In severe cases, and with cooling, there's a decent chance that you'll see evidence of multi-organ injury, with rising LFTs, creatinine, coags, and so on. Unfortunately, despite all these chemistry abnormalities, there's not one single diagnostic test to really confirm your suspicion that your patient's having a heat stroke. I guess worth mentioning, before we get into the specific treatments of heat stroke, are other diagnoses that you won't want to miss. Severe sepsis and septic shock can look almost identical. Empiric antibiotics are often started while cultures and CSF sampling are underway. Neuroleptic malignant syndrome is another consideration and can be clinically distinguished from heat stroke on the basis of rigidity or more impressive CK elevation and some psychiatric or medical history that indicates the patient was taking a dopaminergic antagonist or they're a patient with Parkinson's disease who's withdrawing from treatment. Serotonin syndrome is another condition not to miss and hopefully you'll have access to the patient's medication history. Unlike NMS, Serotonin syndrome presents with hyperreflexia and clonus. Then there's malignant hyperthermia, which we typically see in the hospital setting in patients who have been given a general anesthetic. Anticholinergic toxicity also looks like classic heat stroke, a dry as a bone, blind as a bat, mad as a hatter condition. But given the anticholinergic excess, 
you're going to lose some of those muscarinic processes, pupils will be dilated, and there will be urine retention. Other things, like status epilepticus or autonomic storming, are less likely. And for a more detailed differential, take a look at the show notes in this week's program. The last thing that I wanted to cover today regards the management. It's not going to surprise you that you should be thinking of ways to reverse whatever the cause of the hyperthermia was, and then to get the temperature down. What you may not have known are some of the commonly prescribed medications and other substances that can increase the risk of heat stroke, or they may exacerbate the condition if they're continued. Antihistamines and anticholinergics reduce the body's ability to sweat and to cool itself. Similarly, tricyclic antidepressant medications like nortriptyline, amitriptyline, doxepin, and clomipramine all have anticholinergic properties that impair sweating. Beta blockers and calcium channel blockers, which can slow the heart rate or attenuate the vasoconstrictive signaling within the visceral organs, may ultimately impede the body's attempt at redirecting blood flow to the cutaneous vessels in order to disseminate heat. Diuretics may also worsen heat stroke, for obvious reasons. And neurostimulants, because they amp up your cellular metabolism, increasing heat production, and also they can lead to peripheral vasoconstriction. So a thorough review of a patient's medication list can go a long way. Not to mention it could help you with screening for related toxidromes like serotonin syndrome or NMS, which can both present with hyperthermia and altered mental status. Regardless of the cause, or really regardless of any factor that could have contributed to the hyperthermia, your goal is temperature reduction. In the field, evaporative cooling is the preferred method. This means removing all clothing, spraying the body with water, and using fanning to promote dissipation of heat. If available, direct cooling with ice packs or cold compresses may also be used, and they should be placed near the major surface arteries in the axilla or the groin. By the time your patient reaches the hospital, after your ABCs, you're thinking about fluid resuscitation. This can be done with chilled fluids. You should also be thinking about electrolyte and neurologic monitoring, assessing for complications like DIC by checking coags, fibrinogen, and D-dimer, and continuing to rapidly reduce the core body temperature to less than 39 degrees Celsius. If evaporative methods have not rapidly corrected the core temperature, there are other options. Cutaneous surface cooling is easy, and it can be monitored carefully without having to transfer the patient or limiting their ability to be monitored, but some centers also offer ice water immersion. You can imagine the challenges that are inherent to this. Invasive methods like chilled gastric or peritoneal lavage and intravascular cooling devices have also been studied, but they have limited evidence. And with intravascular cooling devices, you have to consider the risk of worsening the prothrombotic state that's seen in hyperthermia with DIC. It may come as a surprise to you that experts don't recommend the routine use of acetaminophen or NSAIDs in treating the hyperthermia of heat stroke. These meds don't address the underlying problem and they may only exacerbate acute liver or kidney injury as part of the multi-organ failure. And obviously, the multi-organ injury should be monitored and managed, usually with the assistance of specialist consultants and a multidisciplinary ICU team. So, to recap the program this week, heat stroke is a relatively common neurologic and medical emergency on the spectrum of heat-related illness, that can range from benign cramping to multi-organ failure and disseminated intravascular coagulopathy. It's imperative to check the core body temperature in these patients, 
as the cutaneous temperature may underestimate the degree of hyperthermia, and patients should be monitored and managed based on the presence and the severity of the organ dysfunction. If they're seizing, treat the seizure. If there's cerebral edema, manage the edema. For reasons that are related to the cause of hyperthermia, antipyretics offer little benefit for these patients, and evaporative or cutaneous cooling methods are recommended. And with early implementation of treatment and reversal of the underlying cause, not to mention with better preventive strategies in order to avoid overheating in the first place, hopefully we can cool down that 10-50% to mortality rate that's seen in heat stroke. That wraps it up for another episode of Brainwaves. I hope you learned as much as I did about the pathophysiology and the management of heat-related illness. As usual, the Brainwaves podcast is for medical education only and not to be used for routine clinical decision-making. We do reference expert opinions and the peer-reviewed literature in each episode of Brainwaves, but that does not make our program any sort of guideline for the care of these patients. Music for our program this week was courtesy of Ghost, John Bartman, Kai Engel, and Marco Trovatello. Sound effects by Mike Koenig, Daniel Simeon, and all my neighbors and their kids in the graduate hospital area. I'm Jim Siegler, senior producer of the Brainwaves podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.